Welcome back to the Today Dreamer podcast, or welcome if this is your first time here as well. The podcast is all about helping you cultivate the practice of presence in your life so that we may more fully participate in the blossoming of the emergent world story together. So today's guest is a very special one. His name is Andrew Trutel, and I'll quickly tell you a little bit about him. So Dr. Andrew Tutel was born in 1956, and he is an Australian Zen teacher in the Ordinary Mind School tradition, which was founded by Charlotte Jocko Beck. He resides in the mid-north coast of New South Wales, Australia, and he's an accredited mental health social worker and maintains a private psychotherapy practice. He has completed a diploma in narrative therapy, and he studied with the late Michael White and has a Master's of Clinical Science from the University of Adelaide. He also holds a doctorate from the Human Development and Counselling Department at Waikato University in New Zealand. He has a long-term interest in exploring common ground shared between his practice as a social worker, psychotherapist, and Zen student slash teacher. He began his Zen practice in 1988, inspired by reading Philip Kaplou's The Three Pillars of Zen and Jocko Beck's Everyday Zen, and by the birth of his son Joshua from his first marriage. So, Andrew is an extraordinary character. I met him once diving a little bit deeper into the ordinary mind Zen tradition. And I'm really looking forward to share his insights and his perspective with you today. And if you haven't already, say hi in some way or interact. If you've been listening to a few of these episodes, I'd love to get to know who you are on a deeper level. So leave a comment, leave a review, or just send me an email and say hi. I, I'd love to hear from you. So I think that's all. Just before we do begin, I would like to invite you to take a moment with me of pause coming into a state of presence by, like we do in every episode, just by slowly closing your eyes and there's an invitation to, as slowly as you possibly can, take one or two inhalations in through the nose, taking a moment to pause at the peak and just kind of explore for a brief moment of time, what that feels like, what that, what the subtleties of that space are like. And whenever you may be ready, there's an invitation to just let go and release as you exhale, just as slowly and gracefully on the way out, pausing for a brief moment at the bottom and then repeating the process one or two more times together.
and whatever feels right. On your next exhale at some point, it may be nice to synchronize the gentle opening of your eyes with the lower limits of your out breath, remaining in this state of openness and presence as we move into this chat. <laughs> so you're, you were saying around uh, the, the shadow aspect of the work and you're, you're mentioning how uh, the teacher of teachers had gotten mixed up in, this is just through my own words, but um, gotten mixed up into some um, sexual misconduct and, and things of that nature. And there seemed to be more to uh, the practice than the Satori experience. Is that kind of... Yeah, well, the um, the, the um, Joko Beck's um, uh, teacher, Maizumi Roshi, um, was um, a lineage holder in, in three different strands of Zen Buddhism, Soto, Rinzai, and also this um, this uh, uh, lay lineage, which was very influential. Um, uh, there was a, a Japanese teacher called um, um, Harada Roshi and then Yasutani Roshi, um, who brought this particular style of uh, pushing for Kensho experiences to the West. And uh, it was quite a, a disillusionment to many people, including Joko, when it came to light that her teacher had struggled with alcoholism for many years and also had uh, inappropriate uh, sexual relationships with his students. So. Um, it was quite clear that uh, just pursuing traditional Zen in terms of um, this pursuit of um, some kind of Kensho or Satori experience clearly left a lot untouched in terms of the, uh, the psychological aspects of the self, those um, aspects of the self that have been repressed or dissociated or what Young called the shadow side um, had not been adequately dealt with by the Japanese teachers. and. And this was also played out, and in, 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 well, well, there's a, actually a lot of Buddhist teachers uh, uh, um, uh, had difficulties in this area, as well as first-generation Western teachers as well. So it was a huge issue back, and uh, and uh, hence the there was a movement towards the, uh, I guess the the uh, bringing in feminism and bringing in the insights of psychotherapy into Zen practice, so that these days a lot of Zen teachers, probably close to almost fifty percent, would have some kind of training in psychotherapy. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I guess the the way that I kind of just circling back to this kind of course that we've been going through, the way that I've kind of approached it is or have seen that the intersection was is more towards like having one-on-one -on -one interviews with students or having that kind of because i think even jocko herself spoke about that being those conversations or, or conversations with people being a part of the practice in itself and working with people working um having that one-on-one -on -one, that's kind of i don't know just what naturally came to me in terms of uh one clear intersection and the way in which yeah. we listen and, and receive information and share and hold space. Yeah, in, tradi in traditional Buddhism, whether it be the, the Zen tradition from Japan, 
uh, with the one-on-one interviews, one -on -one interviews with the teacher, or even in like in the Burmese tradition, in the Vipassana tradition, uh, with the one-on-one -on -one interviews with the monk. Um, the interviews were often quite formal and very specific on the actual the actual object of meditation in the Burmese tradition or or the actual koan the student was working on in the in the Buddhist tradition, in the Zen Buddhist tradition. And there was no room there for going into one's um uh, you know, personal issues in one's relationship at the time or the issues one was experiencing at work, or even indeed the the difficulties one was having in our Zen practice, and, uh, and uh, that just was just bypassed by the, the, the Asian teachers of those times. So when Joko began, uh, she um, um, and, and Zen one-on-one -on -one interviews are still often like she would have fifteen-minute interviews, and often she would have telephone interviews back in the eighties as well. So uh, for students who weren't able to go to San Diego. And often those 15-minute interviews would be open up to what was going on in the life of the student. So Joker would say things, and I'm much more interested in uh, what your wife think, how thinks you're going, as opposed to what marvelous kind of um, experience of oneness you had yesterday. So she was very keen on bringing it back to how the practice was showing up in our everyday lives. I feel like that's a, a common theme I've heard among kind of different uh, even like uh, koans and different stories, this idea of uh, the student going up to the master, so to speak, and saying like, you know, I've had this wonderful enlightenment experience and, and the master kind of shrugging it off. And it seems like a, a reoccurring kind of thing that that's happened throughout time in different ways. Have you noticed that at all? But yeah, but in, in, the, in the initial tradition that came to the West, as I was saying from Japan, uh, it wasn't like that at all. Um, there was often uh, at the end of a session or a seven-day retreat, those students that had been acknowledged to have experienced Kensho were often, you know, acknowledged and, and applauded. Uh, so it wasn't something that was necessarily shrugged off in those days. It mm. was something that Joko started to do. Yeah, mm. Man, that's interesting. Yeah, I've I, I've heard older stories where it it may 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 not been from the Zen tradition. I'm not quite sure. I've I've also heard stories in the other other regard as well. I think um, Ikyu Sojun, I think his name was, um, and there's like stories about him receiving a certificate of enlightenment and like him ripping it up um, at the temple. So there's there's these kind of yeah these little glimpses into um, the ways people might have been seeing things in the past and how that may have evolved depending on you know who carries on the lineage and and. Um, their own personal experiences and how that develops. Yeah, also. well, that's right. That's right. I mean, I mean, I mean, that raises the other issue of um, of history and uh, culture, and um, you know, the the Chan tradition from China and the Zen tradition in Japan. They're very ancient traditions, and um, the um, we can only really reconstruct and, and interpret um, what um, was necessarily going on. Back in those days, in the in the you know the fifth century or the sixth century, you know, it's um, so um, there is a lot of kind of rewriting of history somewhat in the Zen tradition, and in terms of the importance of lineage and ancestry, and the importance of creating um, 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 
sort of heroic kind of figures um, in, in the Zen tradition as well to, to uh, accentuate the connection with Shakyamuni Buddha. So this notion of the Zen lineage, every Zen lineage goes right back to Shakyamuni Buddha through all the Indian teachers after Shakyamuni Buddha, then up to Bodhidharma in the sort of fifth century, who then brought it across to China, and then all the Chinese teachers, and then through to the Japanese teachers, then all the Japanese teachers, and now in the West we're getting to the first, second, third generation Western teachers. Mm. Mm. This notion of somehow passing on the Dharma from one generation to another is very important in, in the Zen tradition. Mm. But what we're necessarily passing on, maybe we have to sort of reinvent each for each particular, you know, historical cultural period. So, you know, the Dharma probably shows up very differently in the West, as in science, psychotherapy, uh, the way in which it would have shown up differently in China than it did in India. So when Buddhism came across to China, it showed up in terms of Taoism and Confucianism. Mm -hmm. They were the local cultures of the time and that. You know the the reception and uh, the Buddhism has this wonderful ability to um, morph and change as as one would expect in terms of the teachings of impermanence uh, according to the culture that it arrives in. Mm. Have you noticed anything um, or any shifts or changes based on what's emerging currently, um, more recently, or have you maybe contributed well, to? Yeah, the biggest, yeah, the big, I mean, the biggest question is: Will the experiment in lay, like, well, for lack of a better word, lay Zen, you know, uh, in the West? Uh, in other words, taking Zen out of the monastery and uh, practicing uh, in uh, centres which are often run by um, teachers who also, you know, they have to work to earn their living. Um, it's um, early days yet, but that's the way in which it's going in the West. There's a few uh, residential training centers in the United States. There's, there's none, in, none really in Australia. So it's very much a, a lay practice. And uh, Sorry, the residential center is somewhere that you'd live. Is that what you... Yeah, there's a few, like, uh, I wouldn't call them necessarily monasteries, or but there are like a residential training centers in the mm. United States where you could say... You could become a monk and uh, and live there. Um, the, there are there aren't any in Australia, so we are really in, in you know teaching this uh, outside of of, of monastic of, of monastic sort of tradition, and that's one thing that's important. And then the other important aspect is um, the bringing in, I guess, the Western tradition. So whether the, whether the Western tradition is the, a psychological tradition or a psychotherapy tra tradition um, or a scientific tradition or um, a philo philosophical tradition from the West, as well as which cultures, like, you know, Japanese culture, um, you know, Zen reflects a lot of Japanese culture. So what will, will, what will an Australian Zen turn out to be like? Well, in my experience, um, we might maintain some some procedures and some rituals, but Australian culture is very um, not very formal. Not even not even as formal as it is maybe in the United States. We have a very informal culture, 
So some of the, some, I guess my Zendo would look pretty informal to a Japanese teacher. They'd probably be fairly much uh, a bit shocked at the lack of <laughs> precision and, uh, and so on in the way in which we go about doing things. But we try and maintain that sense of respect and mindfulness mm. in Zendo. But it wouldn't be the same kind of formality, formality you would get in a traditional Soto you know, temple or something like that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, this is interesting stuff. So I'm just kind of um, going back to um, this talk that Barry gave again, and and this idea of um, that what some one thing that really struck me was this idea of parts of ourselves that we go into practice trying to fix, and um, how you know indirectly that may occur on some level there might be a change that takes place or there there always is as you referenced to impermanence um just before but there's also this sense that um you know we don't necessarily need to try to uh, we don't need to fix anything it's it's more about working with um and that's where like a deeper layer of the practice kind of um uh, reveals itself and, and allows us to you know uh, sink into that. So I was wondering if you could maybe share a little bit on that and and this idea of uh, working because it sounds it sounds a little bit counterintuitive in a sense um, when mm. when you initially think about it, just because there's parts of ourselves that don't um, you know we know we're letting ourselves down in certain ways or we feel like we are. Uh, we may feel like we are. We feel like um, you know, for example, there's uncomfortable emotions and uh, feelings of you know anger vulnerability um, greed come up um, so how do we dependency so like these kind of things are worth working with is uh, can be quite a shocking um, thing for someone to hear so I was just wondering if you could yeah maybe just open up on that or what comes to your heart or your mind when when I bring that up yeah yeah I mean that's um, uh, the, the core of the practice really in many ways. Um, so, um, you know, in, in, in the West, p- perhaps more than in, uh, in other uh, cultures, and uh, we struggle a lot with um, the sense of self. And, uh, you know, you'd be familiar with issues such as self-esteem. And um, this wasn't unknown in the Buddha's time. I mean, the interesting thing about that particular time in history, often referred to as the axial age, this this the sense in which you had this transition happening back about 500, you know, BC, um, from a kind of, I guess, um, very much a, an agricultural culture where everybody knew their place. To the beginnings of a of a merchant kind of class, and uh, so there was some like a merchant um, doesn't necessarily is not necessarily tied down. So the question of who am I was also starting to appear in the in the time of Shakyamuni as well, and uh, and uh, one of the interesting things about the historical Buddha was you got this sort of um, sometimes uh, different contradictory sayings. Sometimes he would talk as if there was a self, and then other times he would say things like there's no self. Um, and uh, when we tried to, when people tried to make sense of that a few hundred years later, they kind of like developed a teaching known as the two, diff- the two truths or the two, 
the conventional and the and the ultimate, and 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 the Buddha taught depending upon the audience and so forth. Um, so even in those days, there was some questioning around, you know, what is this self that we call ourselves, and who am I if I'm not the kind of, uh, you know, just if my if I'm not the role that then what am I? And um, so of course, uh, going into the West, like. When you think of our times, like the 19th century, with the with Darwin and and then with Freud, um, uh, with the World Wars, we we had this, you know, collapse of, um, I guess, of foundations in Christianity or foundations in the notions of Western philosophy as what the truth was. So we had a similar kind of. Um, uh, Anxiety around questions of identity and questions about the meaning of life, etc., etc., the whole notion of the death of God and so forth in the 19th century, moving into the 20th century. And, uh, you know, when the, when the Dalai Lama first came to the West, he, Western students would start to talk to him about this sense of self-hate they experienced or this sense of self lack of worth and he was quite puzzled by that in the 60s and it was something that was a bit unfamiliar also in tibetan culture again i guess you know like um we have a very individualized construction of the self in the west so it's even more um at the uh at the pointy end so to speak of uh where we often get into difficulties and uh, because of our culture is also very individualized as well. So there are lots of ways in which people in the West can experience a um, sense of personal failure that um, it's quite understandable that we run into all these problems around the self. And um, so I thought about this a, a great deal. And I think there's, there's two basic ways of understanding this uh, from my perspective, which I'm using at the moment. So one's the psychological one, so the social psychological sense in which um, we, um, pr primarily through the lens of developmental or relational trauma, um, most of us as children, um, we, 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 we can't escape some sense of, um, of, 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 some some kind of um, assault on our sense of ourselves, and, and, and uh, some more severe than others, of course. But um, most children will start to struggle with notions of shame uh, or abandonment or rejection. And this leads into often the construction of an ego self, which is very much around... Um, the sense of trying to survive and to protect ourselves from these kinds of uh, attacks to our, our basic sense of self. But what what normally happens in those kinds of contexts is the child develops some sense of, you know, I'm bad or I'm not good enough or I'm not lovable. There's, there's some basic negative um, evaluation of the self. And the other thing about this too is that in our culture, the self is formed very much in, in a dualistic way, as a, in terms of a subject-object duality. And in our culture, we, we, we kind of like had this notion that the self is somehow 
you know, in here somewhere maybe, and there's there's other people out there and other objects out there. And this kind of representation of the self leads to a sense in which we can treat ourselves as, a, as an object as well. So, um, so we can objectify ourselves in the same way as we objectify other people. So I'm bad, or I'm not good enough, or I'm a failure. These are all objectifications of the self. And uh, so often when people come into psychotherapy or indeed even some kind of uh, spiritual practice, um, often the, these experiences are the ones which Barry talks about, which have been repressed or are dissociated from uh, the unacceptable. So like there could be, un it could have been when we were growing up, it might not have been acceptable to say, express ourselves as a male through crying or it might not have been acceptable as a girl to express ourselves through anger. So these emotions like anger or crying become um, compartmentalized away. They're, they're kind of like not acceptable in our, in our family of origin or in our culture sometimes. So, um, and also in trauma, sometimes, um, there the, the can be a whole process of dissociation so that um, um, experiences of, of, of trauma, such as uh, domestic violence or sexual abuse, uh, we can disconnect from those through a process of, um, in order to go on surviving, they become kind of like dissociated from, they become different parts which we dissociate from. And uh, often the part which carries shame or a part which carries the, the sense of, um, of um, yeah, shame's a big one um, in terms of that. And, uh, and then these, 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 and then sometimes spiritual pra practice can play into that, can sort of, um, like, for example, if, if, we, if we grew up with a, a, an attraction to the same sex and that wasn't acceptable in our family or our, that becomes repressed or dissociated from, um, you know, they have, they have a habit of coming back. And, um, but sometimes spiritual practice could collude with that notion of trying to push them away or push them back again. So in Barry Majid's teaching, you know, he's very central to um, create a space of allowing this, the, these uh, previously, you know, compartmentalize away parts of ourselves to actually uh, allow ourselves to experience that. And in, 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 in a kind of relational trauma, we're wanting to provide a relational home for those parts of ourselves that we've disconnected from. So the therapist or the Zen teacher hopefully provides a relational home in the sense in which the, the student or the client can then, through the acceptance of the teacher, learn to bring an acceptance of that to themselves as well. So it's a very much not to fix it, but just to experience it. Mm -hmm. um, um, because if you, if you go in there and try and fix it, it that, that can compound the problem and, it, and just sort of reinforce uh, the notion that there's something wrong about this. So that's the kind of psychological dimension. But there is, a, there is another interesting, what you might call an ontological dimension, 
in the questions of being or existence, which go more to the heart of what Buddhism talks about in terms of emptiness. And that is the self in a way is like everything else. It's, it's, it's impermanent and um, interdependent and has no real you know, self-subsistence. It doesn't exist in that sense. And, um, and sometimes that can also manifest this sense of, am I really real, can sometimes manifest as this sense of anxiety or this sense of um, escaping or fleeing from that sense of anxiety, which, which comes up when we realize that really the self is not a thing. It's really a no thing. But we run away from that sense of no thingness and try and, you know, find trying to make ourselves real in the sense of some kind of self-improvement project or some kind of success, whether it's monetary success. But, but that's always usually doomed to failure because uh, from the Buddhist perspective, uh, you know, essentially at the core of every, everything, we are basically nothing. We're a no thing. And uh, unless we come to terms with that, this sense of lack will always be coming up, this sense of something wrong with me, this sense of lacking, this sense of not being complete. Because in a way, it's a contradiction for the self to accept itself, because if it's a dualistic self, it's never going to be, it's always going to be caught in that subject-object duality. So in some ways, we have to totally let go of, or even what... Um, Dogen, the 13th century Zen, very famous Zen teacher, described as forgetting the self in the practice of Zazen and forgetting the self in the practice of our daily lives. You know, that sense of being in the flow of being in the zone where we lose that sense of self-consciousness and just respond. Uh, and uh, a lot of Zen practice, whether it's um, sitting on, sitting, just sitting uh, in the sense of what what we call no gain practice. We just sitting is enacting or performing that sense in which there's nothing lacking, there's nothing missing right now. And that that practice gradually undermines this sense that we have to achieve something, we have to do something, we have to to be somebody, you know? Um, yeah. It's like just sitting there and being, um, you know, for no other reason than just being there. And it seems like, you know, taking that into life and having that, you know, blend through and, and living in that same way. Um, yeah, it, 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 it seems like a challenging thing. And, um, you know, this idea of ambition and, um, what that ambition may actually really represent. Um, you know, you mentioned, this idea of moving into, um, you know, chasing things or, or having kind of um, certain ambitions. And then this idea of uh, no self and um, kind of just letting go of certain or all of that and just kind of being. And what I've noticed just in my own life, and this is just obviously just from my perspective, but it seems like there's, it's like a, there's like a gradual process that takes place and um, almost like a cycle of remembering and forgetting. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's very good. Yeah, that's a very nice way of putting it. I like the cycle of remembering and forgetting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in the, but it is quite confusing. We're throwing around these all these terms of self and no self, and 
emptiness and fullness and <laughs> um, it, it can just with all the words it can seem a bit um, tangled up at times and yeah. even what kind of get got me initially was this idea of like okay well um, you know if that's the way to be isn't striving for that way to be in itself tangling things up again you know what I mean isn't that a isn't that as well making their um you know something that i'm that i may be doing wrong in this moment because i'm not like that at the moment um well it's true that we're, we often you know might go into the teacher and say no oh, i don't think i'm doing this right or i'm doing this wrong and um um we can we, we certainly can get caught up in that all the time because that's part of our culture uh but um the um it, it's it, it's it, it's it's not a striving it, it it's the opposite of that it's like in in Taoism it's not you know the action of non-action or not doing mm. um, um, in a way like you know Joko Beck talked about what she called it the self-centered self you could see the self-centered self is like constructed around these belief systems that you know that are negative and <clears throat> we develop strategies in order to cope um but then when it comes to zen practice um uh, it, it's just a simple matter of just experiencing that self-centered self as a contraction in the body um the sense in which it all boils down to this moment and this moment manifesting as contraction in the body right now that's the self-centered self and uh if we can just allow that to be there and just experience it well each moment we're doing that we're, we're freeing ourselves or letting us letting let, letting go of the grip of the self-centered self it's like a a really good metaphor is grasping you know the self-centered self is always a grasping after something and in our zazen practice we're kind of like letting that grasping letting go of that grasping mm. all the time and uh like you said it, it's both a a direct and a gradual process uh, because there is a forgetting and a remembering that's why we practice um you know back in the uh, uh in the 60s there was this thing called beat zen you know a number of uh poets and novelists and uh, musicians got into zen in a big way in, in the states in the 60s and uh, they took up this notion that we're already enlightened which is true um it we inherently fine and perfect as we are but then they took that they took up that notion as then well, well what's the point in practicing you know uh, let's not worry about sitting in zazen um but the the point of practice is exactly that it, it's 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 a way in which two things probably more than two but one is that when we take our stand uh, or our place in terms of our posture when we're sitting just just the repetition of that is something that we're doing every day is gradually becomes you know part of our bodily memory in a way it becomes part of us you know it's done and what you do every day you become every day like you know like you know barry's fond of you know using the joke about you know make your bed every morning that becomes part of the you know the person you do you make your bed in the morning and you don't I no longer have to think about it you just do it and so part of that uh is the actual the actual practice of doing it you know it, it becomes more available to you during your everyday life so you're you 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 
it becomes gradually to permeate your everyday life. Um, but the um, but the stand of of just just sitting, um, um, even after and after years of practice, it's still kind of like um, it's 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 not always easy to do because um, you know we, we this notion of wanting to entertain ourselves in some way, uh, you know, to either read a book or you know, to 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 actually. Um, do something uh, when we're just sitting just being it's um it, it really um it goes against the grain of our culture still yeah very strongly yeah just to sit and do nothing yeah yeah this yeah it's it's such a strange thing because it's we we're talking about kind of the evolution of where things are going as things emerge and the two blend together in this kind of well at least in australia we were we kind of mentioned and i don't know this idea of like uh Michael being made up of non-Michael elements and, you know, something like fixing your bed or, you know, sitting, for example, that's like a contribution to those elements. And in a, in a sense, you kind of move into that. I like to think of it as a vibe. So you move into that vibe and that kind of, um, that's, that's becomes another element of, um, the way, you know, this expression is expressing itself in this life. And, um, there's this idea of just making uh, making your uh, your home your monastery in a sense. Like you mentioned, there was no residential area here in Australia, but there's this idea of being kind of immersed in the general. I'm going to use the word vibe again, um, where we are, and then having the kind of um, you know the uh, contagious elements of that come into play because the people around us and the setting and the, and the general kind of way of thinking and all the conditioning and all of that kind of thing put together um, has an effect. Um, and then there's a sense of, okay, like what does a practice look amongst all that? And what does that process look like? Um, this is just things that are just coming up for me at the moment, um, just in relation to what you shared. And this idea of, yeah, just like, making your home a monastery is something I've been playing with a, a lot lately. And, and what does that look like? What does that mean to me? And, you know, there's elements of, there seems to be. That, that's something very similar to what Joker would say. You know, a student goes to her and say, oh, look, I'm really thinking I should go to a monastery. And she said, why would you want to do that? Just become a monk in your everyday life. Like you said, make your home a monastery. Mm -hmm. So like, um, relate, uh, in your everyday life in the same way as you would do in a monastery. Yeah. Mm, mm, yeah. It's just, it's just an interesting thing because it seems like there's, there's benefits and there's things that make it easier and harder on, on either, on either end of the spectrum, whether you're immersed in a monastery or not. I was talking about this kind of uh, recently and it's just been like a current kind of, um, I guess, thing that I'm working, working into and exploring. Uh, what does that look like for me and what that process is like? And there seems to be a few little um, bumps in the road as, as you would expect, um, you know, but um, I wanted to kind of talk about as well, this idea of uh, if we could explore the idea of sitting itself and uh, the, the Zen tradition of, of practice and, you know, discomfort and comfort, you know, what does sitting in comfort look like? And this might even filter back into, 
the surroundings of our environment and like you said always wanting to be doing something there's so much distraction in the air um there seems to be you know all these different elements but there seems to be a lot of comfort I, that's something i've just picked up on really recently and then there's also this sense of sitting uh for the just like you said for no other reason but then but i'm kind of practicing this this form of being without any kind of means to any other end um so this idea of comfort and sitting and discomfort and the value in that um yeah i was wondering if, yeah has anything come up for you when i'm as i'm kind of speaking yeah, that's, these that's, words? That's, a, that's a really good question in, in in terms of the you know kind of like historical unfolding of zen in the west as well so i'll just come before i get to the question of that the sitting and the comfort question just wanted to go back to the question of home as well being yep. at home in the world um in a, in a, in a, in a way as long as we're caught up in the sense of a separate self or what Joker called a self-centered self, or we could call it an ego self or whatever you want to call it, but the sense in which we're caught up in that subject object duality and experience ourself in that way, that self will never be at home in the world. Um, Cause as long as you're set up in that kind of subject object duality, there's always going to be a sense of anxiety at the core of your existence. And, uh, so again, that comes back to the two ways of working with that is one is the kind of um, psychotherapeutic way of um, doing some work around the healing of the trauma and, and doing some work around how we can uh, um, just uh, uh, as best we can um, come to some sense of wholeness within ourselves through that kind of work. But the other one is through the, the seeing, seeing clearly the self as being not an object and not a thing, as a no thing, and, and finding our home there. Um, and um, so I just wanted to, I think the question of home or dwelling in the world is really important. And uh, we can come at it from both those two perspectives, the psychological and the ontological. Um, with the sitting practice, when you probably know that when, again, when there was two, one very influential book called The Three Pillars of Zen by Philip Kaplow that was published in 1968. With that kind of style of Zen, I was talking about that from a, a teacher called Yasutani, who it was a very much what um, you, you might describe as a boot camp style of Zen, which appealed to a lot of young people at the time in the sense in which it was you were really exerting yourselves over those seven days of it was intense sitting practice and even in the soto school that can be the same like long hours of sitting and uh, so either long hours of just sitting in soto or long hours of working on a koan pushing for an enlightened experience in rinzai and um Inevitably, you would develop uh, sore knees and sore bodies and, and yeah, keep practicing, keep going, push, push, push. So we kind of like inherited this culture of push, push, macho kind of Zen to begin with. But then we had um, um, the problems with that, that we've already talked about. And then we had the kind of like a, a feminization and a psychologizing of Zen to make it more gentle. And, um, and uh, and over the years, um, 
again, in those days, it would all the emphasis would always be about going on the session or going on the retreat. Go on, the, that's where you'd have your big experiences. You know, you have to go on your seven day retreat, you know, at least twice a year or at least once a year, you know. And um, so we had that aspect of it, but that's changed a lot. I mean, even Joko would emphasize the importance of experiencing some discomfort um, uh, in a Zen retreat. Like, um, and there's maybe some element of truth in that, in the sense in which if you, if you can learn to tolerate, see, but I tend to think that try and find the level of discomfort which is appropriate to you. Don't try and compare yourself to somebody else. Like, uh, people are at all different stages in terms of their body and their mind and, and where they're at in terms of discomfort. You don't want to traumatize people. So find your own level of discomfort kind of thing. So it's sort of like a gentle kind of being able to tolerate some level of discomfort, but not making it into the be-all and end-all of Zen practice. So I, th I think the actual practice of no gain is much more important. Um, um, and I think it's also important to experience what you might call um, um, a deep level of relaxation or letting go uh, in the sense of what I talked about, the letting go of the grasping and uh, letting go of the, that, that includes letting go of pushing. It's just being this moment and relaxing into this moment. And uh, so um, I think in these days, uh, there's, in the past, I think there was too much emphasis placed upon going away on retreat. And uh, I would follow in Joko's tradition in the sense of in, really, it's all about practicing in your everyday life. I would still encourage people to do a try and do a sit once a day. Um, and uh, but bring that into your everyday life, like bring that sense of practicing into your everyday life. So mm. You don't get that duality between going on a residential retreat and then coming back into your everyday life again. Yeah. Try and make the whole of your life a seamless whole of practice. Right? Yeah, it yeah. seems like a, you need the balance both ways because if you don't have enough of, you know, some kind of a, a yin and a yang is what's coming up for me, this kind of ongoing balance and this ongoing kind of, you know, the right amount for you is an interesting thing that you shared as well because I was just having a discussion about, kind of client uh, work with clients yesterday and this idea of like how people can have these really emotional um, intense experiences during meditation and then as a facilitator what the process or what do you do when that happens um, or what do you not do <laughs> and um, yeah it was just kind of interesting that's a good question I mean you could just come in the like I mean yeah, yeah. I mean I think often it's a very if, it, if it's at all possible um, it's really good to have uh, two people in a teaching or facilitating role. Mm -hmm. if, if you're doing something residential, like if you're doing, or even a one day sometimes, um, to have someone, like if you have um, um, someone, if you have two people, then there's always someone who can then play that role of being with that one person if they need some kind of support. If there's just the one person, it's a little bit more difficult. But like if I was doing it just on my own, um, you know, you, you would designate someone as a kind of manager manager for the retreat, and then they could come in and 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 stand in for you if you needed to be with a with a student or a client who was having a difficult time. So um, yeah, yeah, we it's need to provide that for people. Yeah, 
yeah. good way to play that. Yeah, because you want to make sure that uh, bases are covered. But I just wanted to kind of go back to this this uh, thing that you mentioned about the practice of no gain. Could you talk to me a little bit more about what the specifics of that may look like in terms of the actual practice or some different methods to work with that? Yeah, well, you've already, you've already mentioned that when you talked about getting off the means to an end kind of um, page. Um, any 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 practice where you are uh, pursuing some kind of goal or outcome is a gaining practice in the Zen tradition. So no gain means that this is it. Um, uh, there's, there's nothing missing and there's nothing lacking in this moment. All you're paying attention to is the getting some insight into why it doesn't feel like this is it, right? Mm. Um, and uh, uh, there's uh, and, and this is a really really important insight to get because I think it affects everybody. Like you take something like in Australian culture, something like drugs and alcohol, which is one of the precepts in Zen. Um, we have a culture whereby we. Not only can people use drugs and alcohol to deal with trauma in the sense of repressing something or making uncomfortable feelings go away, but we also use drugs and alcohol to enhance this moment. It's almost like this moment is not is not is not good enough. I need to enhance it in some way, and um, and so we 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 kind of like grow up, I think, in a culture whereby. Um, uh, we 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 forget we get disconnected from the what some of us would have experienced in childhood uh, and also maybe in adolescence but we get disconnected from the the presence of things the 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 sense in the, the, whether it's sounds that are presenting or whether it's whether it's visuals of trees or clouds which are presenting, um, but just the actual mystery of being alive, the mystery of existence, uh, which is presenting itself all the time, we kind of like get pulled away from and forget. Mm. And, uh, and um, so in some ways we have to generate or create a facilitate a space where we can reconnect with that do you have any so, like specific little ways to pepper that throughout our day or is there any kind of specific techniques that you use or that you teach to help um, facilitate that state of being well there's two well the um there's about four different zen pedagogies ways of teaching i guess the first one, the first one, and the most fundamental one is the just sitting. Like the just sitting with no gain, is against goes against the cultural grain, mm. and um, you will see a lot of resistance coming up in your practice. You're just sitting with no gain, um, but sitting. I mean, Barry often talks about just go straight to post enlightenment practice. Right, you're already enlightened, so you're just sitting. You're just performing. Zazen is the performance of that perfection, the performance of that sense of completeness, mm. and uh, just sitting with that. And um, when you when you've practiced that um, a little while, then the it starts to undermine. It, it could be a life. This is this is a lifetime journey as well. 
that like it it, it it starts to undermine the notion that I'm I, I need to enhance this in some way I'm missing something you know I I, 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 I need to have that glass of wine just to enhance the sunset or I need, you know it's um I'm not, I'm not, you know, poo-pooing. I'm not saying you can never have a glass of wine or anything, but just, just to notice that and to inquire into it in, yeah. in your day, in your daily life. Yeah. That tendency we have, that this is not good enough. This is not it, because it, it goes back to those, those real. And so, when we, and then, so that's the just, the just sitting practice can can do that, but then you can, there's kind of like, um, um. You could um, you, you could even practice philosophy and start to inquire into the emptiness teachings and uh, and and start to read some Western philosophers and and that can actually start to open up some interesting you know ways in which we've been conditioned to try and uh, open up a different perspective mm. and then there's the um, um, the actual, you know, day-to-day -day practice of how we show up in our everyday lives, and when we get that direct experience of getting caught in some sense of anger or rage or some sense of um, embarrassment or shame, and how we deal with that, and um, and then then maybe just just sort of um, there are some kind of ways in which we can engage with people in conversations where you are experimenting or practicing just being and in, in the sense of not having a conversation which shows up this this sense of openness or nothingness or um the that this this tendency we have to want to go somewhere or achieve something you can actually explore that in a conversation as well. It's um, not part of the Zen tradition. The closest you would get to that would possibly be koan practice. Um, koan practice is often about trying to undermine one's sense of having to achieve something or some sense of duality of I haven't got it, you've got it, master, give it to me, kind of. So it's kind of like undermining that sense, I haven't got it and you've got it in a lot of koan. Are you doing that through through conversation as well, you are saying? I think you can. We can start to do that through conversations which are not necessarily tied to koans. Um, just ones that you, don't have a means to an end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually just having a conversation about that in the last podcast. So that's an interesting thing that you brought up. Uh, there's a practice called circling. Have you come across that term before? I haven't come across the good the term circling, but go on, keep going. So Tell there's it's it's really. Um, people sitting together and a sense of really deep intimacy coming out and the space just being held uh, without any kind of means to an end to see yeah. what may arise, you know, and that state of being has led to transformation and healing within people and all these other things, but it's not really the reason it's yeah. done. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of like a non-dual practice, uh, which is um, there've been a few people I know, starting to work like that. And I think it's uh, an exciting and interesting, interesting way to work. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. And so I've just got like a number of threads that are getting pulled, but I'm also cognizant of time. And I wanted to just quickly check in if we need to end at this point, it's totally cool. Um, I just wanted to see if, um, 
if you have any time for any more questions or if you like how are we going yeah i'm happy to keep going for a while yeah 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 um yeah so just kind of directions that i've just been pulled in now just there's a couple of things about the precepts coming up and you know you mentioned okay well you can't have that glass of wine in the sunset you're not saying not to at least um um and this idea of using precepts as a guide and how how stringent and how not stringent be and i'm sure it's individual but it's an interesting kind of discussion point and i've also got this idea of um again this this keeps coming up this idea of the contagiousness of the of uh, of the, the context of our lives we're in like the you know you could you could boil this down to australia or your particular suburb or your friends and that's another thing that is really calling me to discuss this idea of speaking to people and with people and the way in which you interact with people i know in i know there's some zen stories or zen traditions or someone's some someone said something like once upon a time this idea of not just not interacting with people that um maybe aren't so i don't know if clear is the right word or the way to put it but there's this idea of almost like not not interacting with them but um, maybe not spending as much of your time in areas that are going to be hyper contagious and go against what your practice is trying to open you up into. But then there seems to be like, obviously a contradiction there with obviously living an ordinary life and being open to whatever it presents itself in any way. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm just want to see what you pull out of all of this, but there's this idea of this contagiousness that takes place. I'm not sure if you know what I mean, but this idea of like, you know, everyone around us and, um, society and everything. And, and like we said, building that monastery within that context, but even just within ourselves. Um, and again, now I'm playing with the word self again, but, um, the way in which we, uh, the way in which our practice unfolds and the trajectory of that amidst, uh, uh, like this, this, you know, ongoing, um, what seems to be chaos at times and working with that, um, in a way that is healthy and radiates love outwards and can help other people at the same time. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, at bottom, Zen's a, 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 communal, a communal practice, uh, whether you are in a monastery or not. And um, so, um, you know, you think in terms of communities or sanghas and um, one of the... Uh, I guess um, invitations to someone who wants to embark on a career of Zen teaching is 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 usually about also creating some kind of community or sangha. Um, although Barry has experimented with also with like um, people becoming Zen teachers within the, within the context of a particular area of practice, like like for example prison chaplaincy or educating lawyers or something like that. So not always necessary to form your own sangha necessarily. But, um, um, but I mean, Stephen Batchelor has a, a nice sort of way, a take on this. He calls it about creating a culture of awakening. So the sense in which, you know, our practice is always communal, it's always relational, and we're always creating as best we can a community or a culture of awakening within the context of a larger culture of um, of the contagion, if you like, of um, 
of um, self-interest or uh, the kind of pursuits that um, we often get caught up in in these kind of um, um, sort of the the, 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 the contemporary cultures uh, of um, of what we could call a gaining culture or a technological culture or a culture which <clears throat> is alienating in some way from that basic sense of just appreciating, um, uh, just appreciating being, just appreciating being alive and the interconnections of all of that. That feeds a lot into the sort of echo dharma movement and that kind of thing. Um, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it can you, it's never it's always a communal practice from the get go, uh, and uh, so I wouldn't say that we want to ex um, uh, we're trying to um, create any kind of um, exclusions or barriers from people who um, um, we, we, we I mean there's a certain element of common sense which comes into it like um, most people that are interested in coming along to a Zen um group uh, already have a certain certain experiences and certain um callings as to why they might want to do that um we're not we're not forcing this on anybody but in terms of our everyday practice in terms of our friends in terms of our um family in terms of our workplaces hopefully we are embodying our zen practice in those particular different contexts and so how we respond to those different situations is going to be hopefully somewhat informed by our Zen practice. So mm. we're bringing some, we're bringing our Zen into those different contexts. Yeah. There seems to be like an, an element of, um, uh, <laughs> I'm just, the words are so slippery, but this, I'm just going to say it, how it comes to mind, although technically it might not sound correct but this this idea of there seems to be like almost like a building of ourselves to allow ourselves to be exactly where we are in a sense and then there's another element where that's going out into the world and um you know no matter who we encounter that in itself is blended with the building as well because we're radiating out our practice with whoever we come in touch with so there's this like continuous building, although it's not building because we're ready where we where we need to be. But there's there seems to be a process that's going on. This continuous changing and and um... one of the one of the metaphors I used a few weeks ago was um, we we are continually pulled in by the gravity of duality or by the you know we we're pulled in. It's sort of like if you if you took the analogy of launching a spaceship into space, um, in a sense, there has to be enough effort and energy in our practice in order to get to the kind of effortlessness of like floating in space in that non-duality. Um, but you know, inevitably, we're always kind of like the gravity always pulls us back into duality all the time, and our practice, in a way, is again is going against that grain of duality. So that we can actually uh, interrelate and be with people in in that sense of lightness without getting pulled into that heavy duality. And then you're kind of creating your own uh, gravitational pull by doing that, which will help them kind of on their journey, whatever wherever yeah. they're at. When someone is is not kind of 
responding to to the gravity of duality it kind of like frees the other person in a way mm. like kind of like in that sense if i don't get caught in your drama in some way at some point you might have a aha moment and yeah <laughs> i'm just having a little tantrum here i don't have to do that right? yeah. yeah 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 it's funny how you share that um, yeah, and do you have any thoughts on what I mentioned about the precepts and, and around this kind of... Yeah, we have a precept, like it was something that Barry and other teachers in the ordinary, other, other Zen schools do it in different ways, but um, um, I'm facilitating a precepts group at the moment and um, with another teacher. Um, the precepts are a nice uh, springboard into discussing all aspects of how we um, understand, um, you know, the, the culture and the society we live in and mm. all the issues um, around violence and abuse that we get confronted with. And um, in a sense, it's um, and just a nice way of honouring the tradition and, uh, and receiving the precepts, but also, again, reinventing it in a way which is, you know, relevant for our time and place so that... Um, the precepts can be a really good doorway into into discussing these kinds of you know social and political issues even just realizing some things that are going on that you might not have realized before i mean practicing yeah. the precepts themselves or at least um you yeah. know attempting to kind of follow them this 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 seems to kind of bring a lot of things into clarity that um may not have been realized before because I think I read it in one of Thich Nhat Hanh's um, books that he was writing to like, um, it was like becoming a monk or something like that, um, like a guide to that. And he was saying in the book that, you know, some some budding monks have this ambition to be like an abbot of a monastery or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of saying how unhealthy that that may be. And and this idea of the, the actual lessons themselves come from the practice, not from um the the knowledge if that makes sense or not from feeding the mind actually the practice and that's what comes to mind when we're talking about the precepts and and moving into them for for a sense of or gaining a sense of clarity by doing that and then obviously discussing that that outwardly and sharing perspectives yeah it's it's a fascinating thing so to, can you tell me more about this group and maybe a little, just to close maybe a little bit more about the kinds of uh, the work that you do and if anyone would like to get in touch or join in if there's any opportunities for that yeah thank you michael um so yeah we um the um the precepts we 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 encourage people um to kind of like personalize them but also use them as a lens in which to view contemporary you know ethical issues and um and um, and in the and and, and 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 as in traditional Zen practice, we uh, we have a ceremony at the end for those people who want to re- actually receive the precepts. You're given a rakasu. You might have seen those photographs of uh, Zen monks with a little square around their neck, kind of thing. It's called a rakasu. I thought that That's was it. originally a um, and no disrespect here, but I thought it was originally like a little apron or something. <laughs> Yeah, well, in some ways, it, it, um, it was um, a, um, a convenient way of, you know, being able to get about doing your work in a Zen monastery and then putting the rakasu on later on. Mm, so, mm. But no, it, it sort of symbolizes the robes and it, it symbolizes um, um, taking up the path of Zen in a way. It's a kind of, uh, 
initiation ritual, I guess you could call it. Uh, and so the studying the precepts is used as the kind of lead up to that um, ceremony of, of receiving the precepts. Um, so some some groups, precepts groups, everybody goes to the ceremony. I've been experimenting with a group where it's optional, so you can discuss the precepts and not necessarily participate in the ceremony, or you, you can participate in the ceremony if that's the way you'd like to go. Again, it's all a work in progress, Michael, in terms of how we you know adapt this particular culture to Australia and so on. And so we have a, the, the name for our group now is Ozen. It wasn't my name. It was a name chosen by the, the Sangha out of a few different names we played around with. And uh, so Ozen is, um, we have, so, you know, we have um, members in Victoria and, and Queensland um, as well as here locally. So we, we try and extend it outwards. Uh, and uh, so there's a website called Ozen, and uh, if people just Google the Ozen website or Google my name, that will come up. And uh, so there's lots of uh, resources on the website. And uh, if anybody's interested in um, getting in touch with me, they can do it through the website, through my email address on the website. I'm always happy to uh, take inquiries or questions from people because that's how uh, my relationship with Barry started. Mm. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing to continue the cycle. And you guys run a session practice, is that is that right? Or we we we, we do normally one residential retreat a year, and uh, we had to cancel it last year because of COVID, and we're still not quite sure if it's going to go ahead this year neither. But mm. uh, we'll just have to see. Yeah. Mm. And when when is that? If you do run it, this uh, year? I think it starts on November the third. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Great. Well, uh, I do appreciate you coming here and sharing some space with me and, and sharing, you know, your your years of experience and wisdom with us. And and it's been a real pleasure and, and real fun, actually, just exploring these topics and, and just getting a different perspective and gaining some, honestly, some clarity for myself, which has been really nice. And hopefully other people can, you know, get some clarity from everything that we've kind of played with today. It's been a delight talking with you, Michael. Mm -hmm. all right well um i'll let you get back to your day and yeah thanks again (sighs) thank you so much for sharing your presence with me and for coming on this journey if you're interested in working one-on-one with me head over to todaydreamer.com see what i may have on offer and if you're interested at all in checking out some of the other videos head over to youtube.com forward slash todaydreamer for there'll be more content uh, around cultivating the practice of presence in order to more fully contribute or participate in the blossoming of the emergent world story together. Catch you in the next episode and be well.